In a New York Times article, Dr. Kiana Ross writes that anti-blackness describes an inability to recognize black humanity. In this Charlie the Median podcast, we discuss how anti-blackness extends beyond the U.S. and can be found in Latin American communities such as the Dominican Republic and Guatemala. The Charlie the Median podcast is co-produced by Lawrence Talks, Inc. and KU's Center for Latin and Caribbean Studies. So grab your favorite snack and join us on our little midday conversation. Welcome to this episode of the Charlie the Merienda podcast. Uh, depending on where we start uh, our podcast or our archives, this could be either episode two or three. I say that because we actually have a podcast uh, from last year where we discussed uh, the topic of machismo. But for the most part, we'll, we'll say this is episode two. Uh, I am your host, David Tamez, and joining me again as my co-host is Margarita Nunez Arroyo. Just, and just as a refresher that the podcast and the li- live in-person series uh, seeks to emulate those conversations we might have during a uh, midday snack or a merienda, eating perhaps, in the case of my family, pan y café. Our discussion today is going to consist of three conversations, and they're all over the topic of anti-blackness in the Americas. Um, to help us guide through these topics, we have three scholars of varying research backgrounds. And so I will be introducing our speakers for today. Primero, we have Vera Burroughs, a PhD student in Spanish and Portuguese at the University of Texas, Austin. Her research encompasses Guatemala's culture of violence and genocide in the archive and the battlefield against non-mestizo peoples. And we also have Preta Prasad, who is an assistant professor in English Rhetoric and Composition at the University of Kansas. Dr. Prasad, a professor of English with a specialty in Rhetoric and Composition um, at University of Kansas, uses Black feminism, women of color feminism, and queer of color critique. Her research focuses on how racial justice movements have historically shaped the university broadly, the disciplines of rhetoric, writing, and English studies specifically. Dr. Prasad's current book project looks at how posts, Ferguson rhetorics of race and racism have initiated key shifts in the way institutions negotiate and respond to racial difference. Specifically, she looks at how the rise of hashtag Black Lives Matter, movement for Black Lives and student protests, movements raise important questions about the racialized materiality of spaces of knowledge making. And finally, our third speaker is Quebec Encarnacion, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Kansas in English literature. Her work is in the post-1960s American literature with an emphasis in Latinx and Afro-Latinx literature. She is currently writing her dissertation on cultural trauma and race in Dominican-American novels. Her project seeks to trace the construction of Dominican history and identity along narratives that favor whiteness and actively exclude blackness from national belonging. Yes, welcome. And we are very excited to have you with us in our little midday snack conversations. And before we get started with our conversations, why don't we have our guests sort of talk about uh, who they are and their work that they do? If y'all can expand a little bit on on the work that, that you all do, we can start with Prita. Yeah, thank you. So as Margarita explained, um, my research is really looking at the post-Ferguson shift that we've seen specifically in universities. I'm sure lots of you are familiar with like the institutional statements that we see that universities release that are kind of decrying racism. And there's been sort of an increase of these types of statements after Ferguson, um, which is kind of the argument that I'm making. And this is a shift from a post-civil rights imaginary where um, we see a lot of post-racial rhetorics saying that, you know, racism is over, Martin Luther King ended racism, it's very 
it's very rooted in a in kind of a heteronormative imaginary of racial justice. And so we start to see a shift now post-Ferguson where we see more of an emphasis specifically on blackness. And a lot of this comes through the public sort of visibility, visibility of um, Black Lives Matter and movement for black lives. And I think this is a really important conversation to have right now because after Floyd and Minneapolis, we're seeing a lot of shifts that are building from what happened during Ferguson as well. We're seeing an increase in, in statements about anti-Black racism coming from corporations, coming from universities. So um, really what I'm interested in is the shifting visibility of Blackness and anti-Black racism, but also from the vantage of resistance and activist movements, because one of the things I really emphasize in my research, I know we're going to talk about you know Afro-pessimism later, um, but the sort of orientation that I have to my research is that um, we really need to move beyond a view of discussing anti-Black racism that always emphasizes injury and death, um, and instead looking at what are the life-affirming practices, what are the practices of resistance um, that Black communities have historically cultivated, and how can we use, how can we emphasize that as a way of addressing anti-Black racism so that we're not always talking about anti-Black racism when someone is killed, right? It should be a sustained practice. It should be kind of part of our everyday lives. And a lot of this is sort of informed through um, the engagement that I have with Black feminists and, and Black queer theory, um, which is very much about coalition, about embodied knowledges, about positionality. So um, yeah, that's kind of a, a, a broad or broader overview of my research and we can kind of get into more specific questions as, as the conversation develops. Okay, great. Thank you, Britta. And Chabet? Yeah, so a lot of my research is on the Dominican Republic and Dominican-American immigrants to the U.S. And the Dominican Republic is actually a really interesting figure in the whole story of anti-Black treatment in the, in the Americas. It was the island of Hispaniola was the first to be colonized by a European power. And it was the first place where you know, Black people were brought in, but also, uh, you know, Haiti, which is the neighboring uh, country in the same island, is the first place that declared independence from uh, an imperial power and then the first Black Republic. And then the Dominican Republic, which is next to it, uh, was the first colony in the Spanish Empire that had emancipation of, of their slaves because of the neighboring, the, the closeness to Haiti. So there's a lot of firstness there. Um, um, and that's where we see people, um, white people starting to negotiate domination over Black people, and then where we also see Black people try to break out of it and try to negotiate their own Blackness and how Black pe white people perceive them. Um, so unfortunately, what we start seeing in the Dominican Republic is a lot of um, internalized anti-Blackness. Um, they see the kind of global anti-Blackness that is being aimed at uh, Haiti because, you know, once it declared that independence, all of the slave-owning imperial powers were immensely terrified of what would happen. So a lot of negative treatment was aimed at that country. So then the neighboring country started internalizing that idea that if you're Black, you're going to get poorly treated, therefore, you know, you need to distance yourself from that. So a lot of my work uh, deals with, you know, that the, the anti-blackness within black communities that gets internalized and reproduced and sort of moving away from that and trying to to imagine a future that does not incorporate those things either from white people directing um, inward or you know black people directing it at themselves and that's what i do Great. Thank you, Jibet. And now, Vera. Hi, my name is Vera Patricia Burroughs, and I am a PhD student at the University of Texas. Uh, my area, my field of study is Guatemala's culture of violence in the archive as well as on the political stage. Uh, when it comes to the archive, I focus on the Garifuna people. Garifunas are, uh, they are a mixed uh, a mix of indigenous Araqua from the South America and uh, as well as African blood. They're af they are Afro-descendants. So phenotypically, they are black for all, all intents and perfect, and they are treated as such. So my research um, sees how they have been treated in archive in the past three centuries. In the 19th century, for example, they were completely erased from the civil registry 
everyone would, you know, everybody was really uh, erased. Race was not a box that they checked at all throughout Latin America. But in the 20th century, something interesting happens in Guatemala. The censuses, and I looked at the last 11 censuses. Uh, in Guatemala, blacks are not given their own racial category. They're actually bumped into with the Ladinos, which in Guatemala, they're known as the mestizos. Now, the mestizos or Ladinos, you know, are the mix of white descendants from the Spaniards and uh, Mayan, Mayan, indigenous Mayans. Obviously, Garifunas don't fit into either category. They are not mestizos in that sense either, but they were just put into that category anyway. So throughout the entire, all of the censuses in the 20th century, they are completely erased. Uh, one, one exception is actually the 1940, but that is just the anomaly. The 1973 census goes back to the 19th century um, practice of not identifying race, period. Uh, so they are whitened. Effectively, you know, blacks are whitened in Guatemala throughout the 20th century. In the 21st century, something even bizarre, more bizarre happens. They are actually given their own category as Garifuna, but they are created. And we have to remember that the census is an instrument of the state. With it, the state creates uh, the society it, that it wants, even if it's a fictional society. And, it, and we can see this really well throughout Guatemala's history. So in the 21st century, they start creating Garifunas places in pueblos, Mayan pueblos, that they had never even seen Garifunas. Places like Nahuala, Bolasán had 54 Garifunas, and I have in, I've interviewed people from Nahuala, and they've never even seen a Garifuna, much less live, have them lived among them. Uh, another town, San Lucas, Acatepeques, I asked people there, hey, 59 people, like, Garifunas live here. Have you seen them? Where do they live? And they're like, we haven't seen anybody here. So, you know, and in not so many words, they said uh, the state was creating these people. They were lying. And, and that's their words, not mine. And so... Throughout all this time, the, the culture impact on Garifuna has been uh, significant. Uh, like uh, John Green says, if you are not, if you are officially do not count by the census, you don't exist. And Jerry Green, uh, who is from the uh, 2020 Census Senior Advisor of the National Urban League, said the money follows the count. It does not follow the need. So if a people who are in need of state funds do not exist on paper, that is the census, they do not get those funds for anything, be it health, be it cultural activity, et cetera. So that is what my research emphasis is, just that. The, the, the cause and effect, 20 centuries of erasure, of whitening, uh, will eventually lead to Garifunas just leaving the, uh, Guatemala and emigrating to places like the United States, Los Angeles, New York City. And so that has uh, really reduced the, the, the people in leaving Isabel. It was founded by, by Blacks, by Garifunas, but now they are no longer the majority. They are, the, in effect, the minority and decreasing with each census. Great. Thank you, Veda. And, and so... With all your research in mind, and I want to move to our first conversation, and this is a conversation just discussing what exactly we mean by, or is meant by anti-Blackness. And because most people are, are, when they we have these conversations, we're familiar with, with using uh, racist or racism, but anti-Blackness picks out something differently. It's not a new reality, but it's it's a different sort of emphasis. So what do we mean by anti-blackness or what is meant by anti-blackness? I will start by saying that anti-blackness is very different depending geographically where you are, right? In the United States, anti-blackness has a very specific manifestation. And really the main one is that American democracy 
And a lot of the sort of constructs that we see coming out of capitalism are coming out of logics of enslavement and anti-Blackness. So democracy really has been built in relation to or through anti-Blackness. Um, and so, you know, if we look at the Jim Crow era, for example, lynching was a practice that was done to perform American civic identity. So if you look at the way that, that lynchers, the way they discussed or justified why they had um, performed a particular lynching, it was to it was to show a certain sense of belonging or, or unbelonging and saying certain subjects don't belong in these in, in certain geographic or spatial locations. So um, the idea, the very idea of American civic identity is is underwritten by anti-blackness in the United States. And then another way to think about the relationship between anti-blackness and um, just racism broadly is that a lot of a lot of other racial constructs in the United States have been formed through anti-blackness as well. So if you look at um, East Asian or South Asian diasporas, historically and, and in contemporary senses, the sense of belonging is, is often justified using anti-black rhetorics. Not only is there rampant anti-blackness within, I mean, I can speak you know, from firsthand knowledge within South Asian communities, but also historically the way that South Asian subjects were able to gain citizenship and to gain access to the United States was by proving that they weren't black, right? Um, and so the it, the very idea of race in the United States is always um, formed in relation to blackness. So that's one of the specific ways that that manifests here in the United States. And then also, like I'm sorry, I'm giving several different angles. So you know, after the civil rights movement, one of the ways that the United States really performed its global power and imperialism was by saying that look, we have done, we have supported civil rights struggles. We are so pro-equality in the United States. And that became actually a form of global superpower for the United States. So even the reframing of, and obviously that none of that was true, but the reframing and re-narration of civil rights struggles as being something that supports America and shows how great American democracy is, is something that we still see manifesting today. And often that's used by conservatives to justify or, or to say, or to individualize instances of anti-black racism rather than see, rather than talking about how they're actually underwritten or they're built into democracy itself. Yeah, and uh, the United States and other powers like it have really imposed this con construction that you've been talking about, the way in which the nation is constructed around anti-blackness um, has been imposed onto other nations and sort of on a larger scale, um, like a country's belonging in the global sphere is is in a lot of ways determined by, uh, you know, the way in which white people perceive their level of blackness. Um, like when, for instance, Haiti uh, declared its independence and declared itself a republic, it was not received, it didn't receive diplomatic recognition from any of the countries, of the imperial countries that were around it um, for a really long time. And it actually had to agree to pay 150 million francs, I think, to the to France to make up for like the property that they had lost um, in losing these slaves. So again, that really shows the way in which, even as it was as a like legit nation, um, it was still being recognized as property um, because of the way in which anti-blackness uh, uh, perceives black people as just chattel. Um, and then in the Dominican Republic, when it declared its nationhood, there was a lot of people coming in from the United States sort of trying to survey what kind of country is this. And they applied a lot of the, um, the American logics of race onto the, onto the Dominican Republic, saying things like, well, you know, the, these people aren't fully black, therefore they are more able. To, to become a nation than Haiti. Um, these people are, you know, the, 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 the way in which they were less black made them more competent as a nation, but still it was really difficult for them to get diplomatic recognition from other countries. So again, like the way in which people um, in, in the United States People are recognized as belonging to the nation um, based on their level of blackness. And in the same way, on a global scale, you know, people are recognized as competent countries based on their level of blackness, um, which is, yeah, another way in which anti-blackness functions, not only locally in the U.S. and as a, on a national level, but then just everywhere. 
the way uh, anti-blackness manifests in Latin America, and I'm going to be more specific in Guatemala, it's not so much violence against uh, blacks, like we see, you know, in, in the United States, you know, Lady George Floyd and uh, others, uh, but we see it in, in economic terms, and that is lack of funding. Uh, in the case of Livingstone and Sabal, they are about 10 hours by a vehicle, by car, from the capital. So they're not really, pre they're not a prevalent community in the capital where most people live, or even in other urban areas, except perhaps Puerto Barrios, which is about 45 minutes from a boat ride from Livingstone. And uh, that is the second nucleus where uh, they have a significant number of, of Blacks, of Garifunas. So they're not really in the, among the population. So the way that anti-blackness manifests is by taking away the resources or not by not distributing the needed resources to fund their needs. Uh, when it comes, for example, for education, they are not, the education of the Garifuna language is not supported. It's supposed to be supported, but it's not. Teachers have to depend, Garifuna teachers depend on their own resources, their own meager wages to make their own uh, visual aids and so on so, so they can teach the Garifuna ch children. Uh, university access is non-existent basically because they have to go all the way to the capital and even middle school and high school they have to travel outside of their community for the most part. So also lack of jobs, job opportunities. Uh, in the beginning most um, in, in my, among my interviews Garifunas told me that most of the businesses belong to Garifunas at the beginning, you know, beginning of the 20th century. Now, at the beginning of the 21st century, uh, only about four businesses of the many, many in that community belong to Garifunas. And uh, this lack of support from the federal government has forced them to immigrate outside of not just Livingstone and, and Misaval, but just outside of the country, looking for better opportunities to, to be able to support themselves, uh, particularly in education. Uh, one mother told me that she sent her children to her sisters in New York so she to, they could actually have a better education than in the United States. And so that's the way that the, the Guatemalan state uh, has dealt with with blackness. You know, it's not an active role. You know, they don't use violent means like genocide. They they reserve that for the Mayan population. Uh, but it's just very, very in a way subtle, and it's just a very slow uh, cultural death that Garifunas in Guatemala have have suffered. Great. And this this next question, I guess, maybe focuses on maybe the institutionalization of, of anti-blackness. And I, I want to go back to, to Preeta's work with how universities have responded or have often maybe embodied some of this anti-blackness. Your, your, your research sort of tries to draw this out and maybe, and maybe suggest that there was a, a interesting reaction to the recent protest, uh, to BLM, to Black Lives Matter movement and protest. Can you say more about that? I know here at KU, as many of you are probably familiar with already, um, the first statement that KU released was a very sort of blanket statement about, you know, decrying racism. And actually it was, it was decrying any kind of discrimination. It wasn't even specific to race. And there were quite, there was quite a lot of uproar about that first statement, so much so that they actually released a second statement in which they, they apologized sort of. I mean, it was a kind of an apology for the first statement. And they sort of listed actionable steps of how they're going to manage the university's relationship to Lawrence PD, for example, um, which was a common move that we saw at several universities. But like, if you look at the, the rhetorical appeals that a lot of these institutional statements will make, it is always rendering anti-Black racism outside of the institution. It's always narrating anti-Black racism as happening elsewhere. Elsewhere, almost almost to the point where the university seems to also be a victim of anti-black racism the university you see lots of rhetorics of sort of emotion and a lot uh, sort of making the university seem as though it is a person 
that is suffering from racism and that anti-black racism is sort of against the values of the university, right? We see a lot of that language as well. And actually that rhetorical phenomenon has a really important history. And a lot of this is because um, the way we understand the humanities and social sciences disciplines today and the way that they're often branded and institutionalized is really rooted in um, protests that happened in the 60s and 70s um, in universities across the United States um, by Black student activists who were demanding Black studies programs, who were demanding um, more Black administrators, more Black students, um, more Black professors, uh, courses in Black history. Um, and this actually led to the creation of um, a lot of the interdisciplinary fields that some of us might even see ourselves aligned with today, like women's studies, um, critical race and ethnic studies, Black studies. Um, but these fields really came out of the, the student activisms that were largely led by Black and Latinx students um, and then got recruited into the institutional project. So so um, these fields are, are, and I say this as someone who, who sees myself as part of these fields, are very fraught in their history because they were created through a sort of radical politics, but now have become institutionalized and canonized even. Um, so a lot of us sort of have sort of both and relationships to the institution in that way, especially those of us who are doing research um, on topics like race and specifically anti-Blackness. Um, and a lot of this coincided with the post-civil rights moment that I've already um, mentioned, which is where the United States started to rebrand itself as being pro-equality and the university got recruited into that project as well. So the university then became a place where um, students, specifically white middle-class students, could go and kind of learn about difference and understand difference in these very um, benevolent ways. So like in English departments, for example, um, like literature courses were rebranded um, as like this is how you you know you read read literature by black authors and you learn about blackness through this way, um, which is a very benevolent way of understanding how and and also an abstract way, right? It abstracts racial reference from the university so that the university doesn't appear to be uh, sort of a, a institution that is perpetuating anti-black racism, but rather it's an institution that is educating people about anti-black racism while anti-black racism continues to happen behind the scenes through erasure um, that can happen through genealogical erasure and the way we do scholarship it can also happen through the fact that there are that the classrooms are are bodied by white students are predominantly non-black students right so there's a, a dematerialization that's happening um, in universities and we and that's why we see these statements today after Floyd and after Ferguson and after Minneapolis where the university is is always abstracting itself from anti-black violence. And this is um, sort of keeping with the theme of uh, looking at institutions. Um, Vera, Vera, you were talking about the, the Garifunas and, and the census. Your discussion reminded me of this debate about eliminativism and in, in, in terms of eliminating our discussions or, or um, about race or eliminating the concepts that, that uh, sort of uh, perpetuate these distinctions uh, amongst the races. Uh, and you, you mentioned that at some point, the, the census removed any mention or uh, classifying the Garifunas. Was it intended as a, as a sort of a, maybe a liberal, well, we might say, I guess, a, a liberal attempt to sort of eliminate this classification of, of by, by race? Or was it was something else uh, at, at hand here? Well, that's a very good question. And I think that one of the things that I, I should start with is that we have to remember that in Latin America, it's very Eurocentric in the sense that whiteness has always been equated with progress, with modernity, and by, by extension with prosperity. So if whiteness equals modernity, then it follows that blackness would equate with the opposite, savagery and of course, you know, slavery, which which is it's something that that black people do have to deal with on a on a daily basis. It, the black skin reminds people the, of, of the ancestry and the history of slavery. Now, why in the 1940, the state decided to remove, let's see, actually it included blacks, but in the rest, I think that it didn't include, 
in the other uh, censuses, it did include the indigenous Maya as a race, as well as Latinos. Now, Latinos are, you know, the mixed white race. I think that it's try, it has, it's, its attempts have been to try to eliminate the blacks, the black race, and the stigma that it that it carries of, of slavery that it carries. I get the impression that it's you don't belong here. We we're going to ignore you. We are a two people state and that's how we're going to keep it and so they just pigeonhole them in what they believe would help them uh, amplify their numbers against the mayan indigenous which have always been the more populous uh race in guatemala why they did that i i think that it's just in my in my uh, opinion it's just strictly racism they don't want to be, Guatemalan state did not want to be in any way related or uh, related with that stigma of, of slavery. This is not a, a slave state or this is not a state that when where former slaves belong. That we believe. And, and they, or they always make that, that assumption. You know, black people are in Belize because that's where all the, the former slaves are or in Honduras, but not Guatemala. We're whiter. We're trying to get rid of the indigenous race. And so again, it's that, that strategy of whiteness. It's, it's it, you know, they're too, they're too negligible in their numbers to wipe them out. And they're just not significant enough in their eyes to uh, outright do something about them. They're not a problem because of their isolation. They're not in their face like the, 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 the indigenous Mayas are. Indigenous Maya, I believe, would be a great, you know, to the state, a greater threat to their sovereignty as a Latino nation. It's always interesting because I think you're part of your initial conversation about the census is that it does create these sort of political groups or uh, these groups that are or maybe used down the line for for political purposes, for for maintaining political power. It, it, part of me, part of my own misgivings about the way this, how the census breaks everyone up is that they eventually, your politicians eventually use them as sort of monolithic groups that have the same ideas, the same sort of uh, desires and needs and, and try to, they try to address those, but they're not monolithic. They're not. So one, what some attempts have been either to eliminate the discussion or eliminate those, uh, those distinctions for those maybe those purposes, but at the same time, eliminating those distinctions uh, or those classifications also can get us into trouble because they have a very social reality. They are, they, I believe they are of some use. They draw out exactly where those social economic problems are in, in, in every society. Uh, one of the misconceptions is, I, I believe, is that the census is, uh, was created to serve the public society, but uh, it's actually not. It was created to serve whoever's in power, the government itself, the state. And so that doesn't mean that we shouldn't participate because money is allocated to the, the communities that need it. Um, at the same time, it is a tool of the state and that we, we, we shouldn't forget that. It serves the state, where, be it to create boundaries, voting boundaries, uh, and, uh, you know, that's just one of many, you know, to allocate money for education. That is another one that, that, that needs to be taken into consideration. Now, if we wiped out all the, the categories of race, that would make the assumption that everybody is equal and that everybody has the same rights, that everybody has the same opportunities at the same times. And of course, we know that that is a fiction. That does not exist. So we need those categories to pinpoint the problem areas that the, the need funding to at least have a chance that the more affluent communities have. When you were talking about the way that the U.S. has branded itself as pro-equality and the way that universities very much joined into that and the creation of Black studies and things like this, it made me think a lot about the way that dance is also very much anti-black and is and the way that it that the universe that it abstracts itself thinking about i was a dance minor and i was always in such shock of 
the way that ballet was treated. Ballet is even the way they talked about it, that ballet was this ethereal form of dance that reached towards the skies. So if ballet is this ethereal form that reaches to the skies to something holy, to something ser serene, then the dances that are inspired pr primarily from Black culture that are grounded with the earth, there is that opposite relation of space and things that's that's coming about. And then also thinking about just the way that dance has also become a, a, a I would say a format of um, who has the potential and the resources to claim the citizenship to dance. Because I think today we even see that, that's, that dance has a form of, form of citizenship. So who is able to attain that citizenship? Um, who is able to go into these studios? Who is able to, and we're talking about the resources that we, that comes about also in the way that, that many times that anti-Blackness is also about who gets those resources. And usually it is not Black individuals and it is not those Black neighborhoods. So I just wanted to comment that because I was thinking about just the way that it also works in dance um, in that sphere and the way that citizenship is also a tie to anti-Blackness because we cannot say that the citizenship is granted to Black individuals when their rights are not being defended and, and their rights is not something that is attained in that way. I mean, I can't speak so much about the dance context because um, I'm not super familiar with that. But what you're saying about citizenship is so key and so important because, I mean, think about what the way that we would define a citizen in the United States, someone who can join public dialogue, right? Someone who has certain types of certain access to literacy and access to public space and a certain presence in public space, right? And that is that when you think about blackness, like that is such a fraught category. Those are such fraught questions because of the history of who is allowed to occupy public spaces and in what way and in which, which kinds of public spaces, right? But also the second thing I wanted to mention is that what you're saying about dance, you see similar things happening in English departments as well. And, and Jibet might have more to say about this from the perspective of literary studies. But even what even in the even in conversations around like ethnic literature, for example, there are certain texts that get canonized and celebrated as having this ethereal um, sort of value. So like this happens a lot with like Toni Morrison, for example. Like Toni Morrison is like the author, like the black woman author that, in that English departments like to embrace. And there are these certain uh, authors that get exceptionalized as being of this high literary merit or of being, of having this high literary merit, uh, you know, similar to the likes of Shakespeare or something. But but it's interesting how that actually leads to abstracting and dematerializing, like I mentioned before, right? So there isn't a lot of connections being made between some of the themes that are coming up in like Ovid, for example, and the way we see state-sanctioned violence happening disproportionately to Black women, right? So um, those are the kinds of things that, those, and this is happening, like like I mentioned before, and like all, all humanities and social sciences disciplines across the board, so that it's not surprising to me that similar types of things might be happening in dance as well. Yeah, and one thing that happens a lot in English departments is that, you know, white literature gets kind of universalized, like, you know, oh, this is expressing universal human experience and human values, whereas Black or any kind of literature by a person of color is sort of specific to their group, whereas whiteness is like general to humanity. Again, equating whiteness with like a higher level of humanity and, and you know, belonging. But yeah, that's the kind of terrible thing about anti-blackness that it kind of seeps into everywhere into every little crack no matter how big or small and then the small things sort of branch out into the big ones like one time I was talking to my sister who is an architect and we were talking about curly hair and she she wears her hair straight and she said oh it's not because of the racial thing it's because as a designer I just really like the aesthetics of the sharp clean line of straight hair and I was telling her like who do you think 
designed those rules of aesthetics that that real rule over architecture and rule over design like it's white people and they've been sort of leading us to believe that those are general values that humanity appreciates so yeah in like dance and all the different disciplines in the world like you get those sort of white values universalized universalized as human values and they're just is just is everywhere when you look at it really I also, one thing I wanted to mention um, earlier was the way, like, looking at the way universities respond to, like, student activist movements now um, and how so much of the rhetoric um, sort of around this idea of free speech like who like is is um doing a sit-in for example in an administrative building is that a legitimate expression of free speech like this is a question that like conservatives love to have right they like they love to have this conversation saying that this is not this is um or it's part of this you know pc culture of trying to silence those who have views that may disagree with Black Lives Matter, for example. And so a lot of the conversation is around like who has the, what is, what, how do we recognize free speech? How do we recognize moments where we can celebrate like, okay, these people are exercising their rights. And even that is racialized, right? Because the idea of being disruptive, which is like, that is what protest is literally supposed to do. It is supposed to disrupt. Whenever we see these moments of even peaceful disruption of like a sit-in or a die-in, um, the question always becomes, well, the, why, why are they being so disruptive? Why are they so angry? Why are they so emotional? And of course, those are, those are racialized, right? Um, and it's based in this idea of white civility, right? This idea that we're, you know, if you really have an issue, you should sit around and have like a, you know, a nice civil conversation about it, or you should go through the proper channels in order to erect change. Um, when really the question is that like these logics don't work for us anymore, right? Like the logic of free speech is, is a conundrum, right? It doesn't work. It doesn't work because it's only applied to certain people. Only certain people are, are, are allowed to have the right to free speech. Um, so I, I, I don't know how that really connects to what you were saying, Jibet, but I was just thinking about how this sort of whiteness gets universalized. And one of the ways that happens is through the discourse of rights and free speech. Thinking about that, I'm thinking about redress and the way that redress is permitted. And so um, I know that I read a book um, this past semester talking about the redress of um, women from uh, the Korean War that were um, victims and that were um, of, of rape. Um, and so the redress that is offered to them is controlled by the state. So, like you were saying, when you're sitting down, like, how can it be a re a form of redress? How can it be a form of enacting your right when it is literally being controlled by the state? When so it becomes part of the abstraction or, or becomes part of something that you have no control over. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but, but I, I thought it connected a little bit. Yeah, like after, I mean, after Trump was elected, and I'm sure you all experienced this as well, is a lot of like white people were suddenly realizing that like, you can't trust the government, right? Like we're not safe under US democracy. But for people of color, like this is not or people of color, queer people, like this is not something that it was new right like trump was not elected in a vacuum like now like one of the one of the things that you started to see was a lot of white queer people who are relatively privileged starting to suddenly feel unsafe in places where they had felt safe before and this is of course racialized and after that in the, in the university we started to see a lot of rhetorics of like safe spaces like how can we make the university a safe space or um uh, one of the uh, one of my sort of academic mentors, Karma Chavez, who you might know, Vera, um, she's at UT as well. She has written about sanctuary and how universities became sanctuary spaces for undocumented migrants, and how this this whole phenomenon is actually a paradox because in order to enforce the safe space, you have to call campus police whenever there's an instance of violence that happens, right? And often it's the police who are perpetuating these violences as well. So, like you said margarita that it's like it's, it's it is controlled by the state so how can this actually be a form of redress and how can this there there are lots of reasons why someone might not want to call the police when something happens to them right and then also when we see you know student activist movements 
they are often threatened by campus administrators themselves um, with arrest, right, or expulsion. So how do we even cultivate spaces where we can have um, activism and protest that's very necessary to happen in the university space that is um, able to be outside of the logics of the state? Keeping with the theme of, of protest and, and sort of rising to to address these inequalities and these injustices, uh, Veda, have you have there been any similar, I guess, protest or actions by the Garifunas or anybody on their behalf in Guatemala? Well, not on a large scale that we're seeing in the United States. Mostly uh, large scale protests are uh, by Maya Kiche, uh, the, the Mayas that uh, are over they constitute over 50% of the population. So they have the numbers to uh, have these huge protests. Even though they're peaceful, they are very, um, they're very impressive actually. And that is how in 2015, they managed to oust the then sitting vice president and the president the, the next year through these marches. So uh, those kinds of protests are effective in Guatemala. But I can't say that the Garifuna have those numbers. I mean, they, 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 I'm looking at the censuses right now. And at least in 2002, the Garifunas numbered 5,040. And so total in the entire, in the entire territory. Uh, in 2018, there were 19,000. But again, like I said, that's most likely a very fictional number because from 5,000 to 19,000 that the numbers just don't add up that they, they have tried to protest in you know through in written form and other more peaceful uh avenues yet yeah, that has happened they didn't ha have recognition into 1996 and that was through the the peace accords and they had the backing of the guerrilla movement because the guerrilla movement, uh, the URNG, URNG, which was the, the umbrella term for, for the guerrilla movement, uh, they specified that they wanted, they, they demanded that all ethnic groups be acknowledged uh, and supported within the territory. That was part of the peace accord. So that is how the Garifunas were able uh, to appear in the 2002 census because it was in, in a part of that treaty. It was the only way because you know they were they they were they existed throughout the 20th century and they were unable to do anything on on their behalf. Uh, their numbers just they don't have the numbers for for any significant political movement like we've been discussing. And, and Jabet, I, I guess I can pose a similar question to you. And, and given the work that you do, and I guess that focuses on the Dominican Republic, have there been similar sort of protests trying to address the issue of, of anti-Blackness? Yeah, so like I mentioned, um, the Dominican Republic has been trying to define itself in opposition to Haiti um, for the entire um, time that it's uh, been a country. Um, in fact, the country was uh, occupied by Haiti until 1844, and they have an Independence Day from Haiti, and that's the Independence Day that they celebrate. Even, despite the fact that they have two separate Independence Days from Spain, the one that they choose to, to celebrate is the one from Haiti. So I think that's really telling on, on to how the Dominican state try to tries to define itself and its people. However, the Dominican people themselves are a completely different thing than what the state is trying to tell them that they are. Um, the state is trying to define, oh, we're white, we belong in the global uh, state, as a white, Spanish, Hispanic uh, country, but then the people themselves recognize their own color, um, especially in the border regions, the regions like close to the border with Haiti, um, they recognize a reality that is different than the government is trying to tell them. Um, so a lot of popular uprisings and protests have arisen out of that borderland in between Haiti and, and the Dominican Republic, where the citizens are recognizing that the reality that they're being told is real isn't real. Um, so, for instance, when the Dominican Republic declared independence from Haiti, um, the people of the borderlands were afraid that that meant that they were going to reestablish slavery, because before uh, Haiti was occupying the country, like, 
there was slavery uh, and it was Haiti that emancipated the whole country. So when the country declared independence, like former slaves were really scared that they were going to be re-enslaved. So there was a lot of protests and a lot of fighting um, going on in the border regions. And then just in general, a lot of a lot of protest movements have come out of the border region, just Black people trying to assert that their reality is different than what the state is trying to tell them is their reality. Um, and in fact, in if many people may know this about the Dominican Republic, in 1937, there was a really terrible genocide of Haitian people at the border of the Dominican Republic. Um, and it was sort of framed as a, you know, Dominican people recognizing that they were different Haitians decided to expel Haitians from their land. Uh, so that was sort of the framing of like Dominicans against Haitians. But what it really was, was the state coming into the border region and trying to fight that population of people who were in between countries and who were sort of challenging the state reality um, and them just starting to destroy that community and sort of impose their state control in, in that high community and be like and impose Dominicanness by itself um, onto people who who uh, identified as more hybrid um, so yeah there's a lot of that of like popular uprisings against what the state is trying to tell Dominican people that they are uh, but uh, Unfortunately, a lot of what we see as well is sort of like people accepting what the state tells them about themselves. Like, oh, um, we are white, we are anti-Haitian, even though like their skin is literally black, they still, a lot of them accept what the state tells them. Um, so there's a negotiation between resistance and sort of compliance um, going on in the Dominican Republic, which, um, you know, is sad. We really want to resist, um, but it's sad to see that it's uh, compliance also happens. As we kind of move into this final, this final discussion here, Rita, you mentioned that the protests, you know, they serve a purpose. They, they mean, they're intended to sort of disrupt and sort of break into these traditional conversations we've had about uh, race and race relations. How, I mean, and this is directed for everybody, uh, from your research, from, from what you've read and written about these topics, how do we have these conversations, or is it a matter of having conversations? I, I guess that's one way of, of putting it. And to actionable changes and solutions to to the issue of anti-blackness and and the and the realities that some of the some of the uh, communities that we've been discussing can achieve a certain state of where they're not pushed to the margins and and uh, from fully being participants and in, in their in their systems. So the. What I will say is that I think we have entered in the United States, we have entered an era in which many people are on board to have the conversations, right? Like it's very easy, I think, and I'm talking not of like, you know, the low hanging fruit of Trump supporters. I'm talking about like, you know, white liberals who are otherwise well-meaning, um, who are very willing to have the very difficult conversations, are probably willing, I mean, if you watch the DNC, this is coming up even in the DNC, um, that people recognize that anti-black racism is systemic, right? So that is not, getting people to recognize that, especially those who are already sort of well-intentioned or see themselves as not racist, that is not a challenge anymore as much as it was maybe 10 years ago. Um, what is difficult though, is to sort of um, disrupt those um, constructs that continue to demobilize movements. And one of them is the one that I already brought up, which is that there is this sort of rhetoric of civility, right? That like, it is very easy for um, white progressives to get on board in decrying police death or the uh, police murder, right, of George Floyd or Michael Brown or or even uh, Zimmerman's murder of Trayvon Martin, but it's very difficult to then ask the question of why is it, why are you uncomfortable when protesters block off a highway or when they block off campus? What may, what about that makes you uncomfortable? Because what I, and, and I make this argument in my research that I think there are certain visions and sort of constructs of black embodiment that are, that are, um, 
really underwritten by anti-blackness themselves. So it, when someone dies or is killed or is, or is under threat of being killed, it's very easy for people to say this is wrong, right? But when there are these sort of acts of survival and acts of affirmation and acts of disruption, that's where the conversation becomes a little bit more contentious because that's when people are like, well, why do they have to be this disruptive? Why are they attacking me? I'm the I'm well-meaning, right? Like I have support them so why are they coming at me why can't I do things right so that's what I think that like in the in this current era that the thing that we'll have to contend with the most um, is getting people to shift the paradigm from okay we recognize these people have died and have been killed but how do we how do we then translate this and move beyond this wall of just critique 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 and actually doing something generative with it and I mean I can I, I, I'll open it up to everyone else but um, you know I have more definitely more to say about that as well but yeah and a lot of I think what needs to happen um in in the sense of like giving equal um and the, the kinds of resources to communities that need them is sort of us having a more realistic idea of what justice is going to look like um just because for people who have always had a privilege um you know, equality seems like injustice to them so you know there's a lot of people who who sort of support the movement but then if they ever see themselves in a position where they as white people are outnumbered then that's you know injustice somehow so you know justice is not going to look like you know if there's two spots one goes to a white person and then the other one goes to a minority and then all of the minorities have to fight for that one spot like that's that's a kind of equality that has been imagined right now as like oh that's the justice that we're going for but it's, it's actually much more substantial than that yeah having a realistic idea of like oh that means i'm gonna have to give up some of my position and some of my privilege and i need to be okay with that like that needs to be a really big part of the movement well in the case of guatemala it's going to be difficult because it's the state who is basically ignoring or refuses to acknowledge that the the right of garifunas to it not only exists, but to also have uh, public funding for, for their cultural and for, for all their needs. So it, that, that's a, that seems like an uphill battle because it's, it's the state. It's not so much the people, although they probably don't help either. Uh, again, it's just, it comes from, from a culture of perceived whiteness that, you know, it's, it's the, the argument that white equals modernity and, um, and progress, whereas black does not. But at the same time, it's um, when it comes to the United States, and you know, I'm just going to speak uh, more specifically to the census. Is where do we go from here? Well, the first thing that people should know is that those that are not counted in the census, by and large, are people of color. And so it's kind of what we were, I was discussing, you know, if you don't exist in the census, if you do not count, you basically don't exist. And so, and if you don't exist, well, then that you, that the state has no, they, they don't, they don't have, um, they don't, they don't need to, to serve or legislate on, on your behalf. And so uh, I'm going to, you know, uh, go back to what Jerry Jerry Green said. You know, you have to make yourself be counted because if your community that needs that money doesn't get it, well, another community will. Because there's, I, I believe she said that there's over 500 federal programs that provide these services, and uh, if the numbers aren't there, you know, the community won't won't get it. So the money follows the numbers, the count, not the need. Um, so. Going back to, I was going somewhere, I swear with this. Yeah, when it comes to Guatemala, yeah, that's, that's it. Just the, to stop the strategies of marginalization and somehow prevent them from uh, immigrating so much. You know, give them a reason to stay in Guatemala. If, you know, if really that is what they want to do because eventually all the Garifunas of Guatemala will leave, you know, and who can who can blame them? They have a right to live as comfortably as they can. I was also thinking about literatura, specifically like thinking about uh, Latinx literature, Latin American, and thinking about Gabriel Garcia Marquez and how that is someone that 
is um Kritik said would be like high merit like this always known uh sorry my cat's here um but one of his novellas i i think we we have to be able to see like the anti-blackness that this author produces and that is is being read and many times is not being critiqued in the classes and and thinking about latin america like there we have to be able to critique this and many times it becomes this there's this huge like i grew up in the u.s so i i don't have this experience of growing up in mexico and if i did i knew that i would have this privilege because i'm i'm light-skinned but i have to be able to critique it critique my parents and 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 critique these these high elevated authors like uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, um, Octavio Paz, who Octavio Paz mainly was is written for men. There is this this very much sense of who they are writing for, um, and literature is is so important. And, and I don't know, it was just something that was was coming up in my mind that there are these these people that that we hold that we know and we have to be able to critique because um critique ourselves and critique these authors because they cannot continue to be the things that people go to because it's just a reproduction of of anti-blackness of violence of of other things um yeah. Yeah. And I would add to that, that um, one of the, and this is, this is also kind of um, speaking to what Jibet already said, that one of the challenges I think also for the current moment is um, realizing that something doesn't force not, I mean, I'm speaking in sort of a general sense is realizing that not all experiences have to be re relatable in order for someone to need to, to feel compelled to act upon it. Um, and, and I think there are a lot of problems with, um, some of the narratives that we see in the media, um, you know, around like we saw this when Michael Brown died, we saw this when Trayvon Martin died, we saw this a little bit with George Floyd as well. The re there, there's a heteronormative rhetoric that really um, surrounds um, the exceptionalized violence done to black men and boys, um, which is that, and we after you know after Trayvon Martin was killed, um, Obama gave this very famous um, address where he said, you know, Trayvon Martin and could have been my own son and we saw a lot of this repetition of like this was someone's son this was someone's husband um and there are problems with that narrative because a it's sort of tapping into it's trying to tap into this universal universalizing of a particular kind of anti-black violence but b it also leaves invisible the types of state sanctioned violences done to black women black queer and trans people black disabled people who do not necessarily fit into that same heteronormative narrative as easily so um like by comparison if you look at Cece mcdonald um you know she she kills the man that was attacking her who was a white supremacist and she was a black trans woman and the way that she was discussed in the media was through her own like the if any news story that you look up about cc mcdonald it emphasizes the violent way in which she killed her attacker so she was seen as an aggressor even even in a situation in which she had been targeted as a black trans woman by a white supremacist and then she was misgendered and placed in a men's prison which is in and of itself was another violence on top of that so um that cc mcdonald didn't circulate her name didn't circulate in the same way that other deaths around the same time had circulated because she's a black trans woman and couldn't fit into that heteronormative narrative of like this is someone's husband this is someone's son so i think one of the things and this is sort of going back to what margarita said is that we need to be very aware of how gendered and sexualized these narratives are as well because that is why we there's still no justice for brianna taylor for example 
um, because she's not seen as, as in the same sort of, she doesn't occupy the same um, sort of victim construct that George Floyd did, right? And a lot of it is because um, one, of my, uh, one of my former um, dissertation committee members, Treva Lindsay, who's like a very famous black feminist scholar, one of the things, one of the arguments that she's made is that the reason why we don't see a lot of visual proof of violence is done to black women specifically, but also black queer and trans people is that often these violences are happening in private or domestic spaces. So there isn't the same visual evidence that we have for people like George Floyd, where there was the sort of visual evidence of him being murdered. So I think we just need to be really aware of these logics. And this is also why I say that it's not enough to just circulate images uh, or videos of black black people on the streets being killed as a way to motivate people to somehow care about anti-black violence. I think that's an inherently problematic um, appeal. This conversation could be ongoing and it could last uh, in a great deal more time. Um, and there, there are topics that I, I would like to have, uh, like, well, I'll get to that later. There are topics that we can't uh, get to in, in our, our short time frame here, but I, uh, as we as we wrap up here, I want to give everyone a sort of last last word. What are some of the things that we should take away from this conversation? One of the things that I really would love to leave off with is just the the idea that um, actually resisting anti-blackness is a much more sustained project than responding to these exceptional, exceptionalized moments, right? Like the work isn't done because protests aren't happening, right? Or that protests have calmed down, which they haven't, just the news coverage has, has, has shifted. But um, really it's the hard work of saying, okay, like at least in an academic setting, like how does one treat their black colleagues, for example? How does one step down from certain opportunities because they want to give that opportunity to someone else who needs that opportunity or who deserves that opportunity more? And some of those types of interventions are so much more um, difficult and disruptive in a lot of ways because they move beyond the in intellectualizing that we like to do in academic circles. We can speak over for hours and hours and hours from an intellectual standpoint about anti-blackness, but how are we going to translate that into what we do in our teaching, what we do in our scholarship, who we cite, who we, so I think all of those are the kinds of questions we need to continue to ask. And that's a very difficult and uh, uncomfortable thing to do, um, but it's necessary. Um, so we really need to change and shift the way we talk about like even race, right? Like any, any race, any discussion around race, we need to shift the way we talk about it. And then also we need to realize that there are other, there are um, resistance practices and there is artistic creation and cultural production that we need to continue to uphold and celebrate rather than to only think about blackness and anti-blackness in relation to injury and death. I think that one of the things that I have uh, perhaps heard coming up is that to be black is to live as a less than citizen in any society, just in the world. Uh, to be black just carries that stigma. And I think that the anti-blackness movement is just one of the one of the steps that needs to be taken, one of those conversations to begin to change that culture of of anti-blackness, of to change the, the strategies by the state, to change the culture in society, you know, the, the attitudes uh, of white privilege. And um, I think that it's, it's hard to put a timetable on it, but I think that the more this conversation uh, takes place in the public arena as well in the private spaces, I think that progress can be made but it just depends on the willingness, not just of the people of color, but also of white people. Um, well, one thing that I have seen coming up throughout the conversation is just how deeply um, embedded throughout history anti-Blackness is, and it's sort of, you know, sort of embedded in the construction of the nation, construction of history, construction of the citizen. Um, so that's that's a thing that we have to, like, th think about when we're t thinking about combating anti-Blackness. Like, it's embedded in everything, and every little thing needs to be, uh, you know, 
questioned and, and resisted, well, not resisted, but like uh, examined uh, for traces of anti-Blackness um, in order to move forward. Well, thank you all for the thoughts and, and the work that you shared with us today. And for those listening, I, I want to encourage you not to just listen to your listen yourselves, uh, listen to this episode uh, on your own, but also to share it with your your family and friends, and as a way of generating conversations within uh, within your own circles. I would like to thank our guests for for joining us, um, and for all those listening, thank you, and we'll see you next time on the next episode of the Charlie the Medium Podcast.